0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll be looking at uh, the last three verses of the letter, verses 12 through 14, and some have asked me, well, where are we going after 1 Peter? And uh, next week, I'm not going to leave 1 Peter till I do kind of a one final uh, overview of the book, just to highlight some things that that uh, I think are precious and wonderful truths in the book. So we'll do kind of a one final summary of some of the main themes, and then uh, where do you go after First Peter? Well, you go into Second Peter. So it's just kind of moving uh, right down the the line there. So, uh, but this morning in First Peter chapter five, I'd like to begin reading in verse twelve. And again, this is uh, Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for our edification and our blessing this morning. Peter writes, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Many kind of look upon the beginning of letters and the end of letters as just kind of like throwaway information. Unimportant, miscellaneous material of little value. Kind of like the wrapping paper on a birthday present or a Christmas gift that you just tear off and throw away to get to the good stuff on the inside. Well, we don't treat Scripture that way because... All Scripture, every word is inspired by God and profitable for the church and it's true that some parts of Scripture are more could be more edifying and beneficial than others. Probably most believers might benefit more and be blessed more by reading psalm twenty three than they would the genealogies and first chronicles, but it all comes from the Spirit of God, and it's all there to edify and build up the church. Every single word, every single name. So because of that, we don't want to overlook these last few verses that that, uh, Peter wrote to these churches in Asia Minor. So let's begin to look at this because there's a lot of interesting information that Peter includes here for us. He says in verse 12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. So we might start by asking, well, who is Silvanus? And actually, when you look at this particular name, most commentators uh, believe it's the same person as Silas. And if you have the NIV this morning, it'll actually say Silas instead of Silvanus. Now the reason why I think they're the same people is because if you look at Acts chapter 18, when Luke is describing the journeys of the Apostle Paul, he says that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And then Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia and joined Paul in Corinth They brought a financial gift that enabled Paul to start devoting himself full time to the ministry. But when Luke describes who was in Corinth preaching and ministering the Word of God, he says Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now when Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth, and he's describing who was there when they first came to minister to them, Paul says it was me, Paul, and Sylvanus and Timothy. So most people think that Silas and Timothy are one and the same person. Now I think these two verses uh, are pretty convincing, at least in my mind, that uh, that they refer to the same individual. So. Sylvanus and Silas, two names for the same person, certainly not uncommon. Paul had Saul as his name. Barnabas had Joseph as his original name. A lot of the people back then had uh, two names, one for the Hebrew, one for the Greek. Or it could be that uh, Sylvanus is Silas's Latin version name and Silas is his Greek version name. Either way, these are probably the same guys here. Now, when we talk about this, Silas, or Silvanus, was originally a leading man in the Jerusalem church. He was a prophet, we are told in Acts chapter 15. He was a Roman citizen, we are told in Acts chapter 16. But because of his godly and trustworthy character, Silas was chosen to go with Paul and Barnabas from Jerusalem to carry the letter to explain the Jerusalem council's decision. Remember that whole issue over do you have to be circumcised to be saved? And the council said, no, you just have to ring. The Jerusalem church chose Silas and one other man to go with them because they trusted him. He was a godly man. And so... When they made that journey from Jerusalem up to Antioch, Silas went with Paul and Barnabas back up to that particular church. So later on Silas or Silvanus who is now with Peter because he's sending his his greetings and he is uh, uh, with Peter when he's writing this letter. Previously, this same individual, Silvanus or Silas, was with the Apostle Paul. So when Paul left on his second missionary journey from Antioch, if you can see that on the map, he started off with Barnabas, an individual that is now with Peter, had previously spent quite a good measure of time with the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. This same individual Silvanus who is with Paul on his second missionary journey is included in the letters that Paul writes to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, and also to the saints at Philippi. And Paul will begin his letter and include Silas or Silvanus that this letter is coming from us. So he was a very close... Companion with the Apostle Paul. Uh, Even in Philippi. Is when Paul and Silas. Were thrown in jail. And they were beaten. You remember. They were beaten with uh, rods. With many blows. Their feet were put in stocks. Because they had healed that little uh, uh, girl. That had the demonic spirit of prophecy. And the uh, ruling authorities threw him in prison. Well, Silas was there with Paul at that time. So he was a courageous man. He had endured much persecution for the gospel. And he spent uh, a good period of time with the Apostle Paul. But now he is with Peter. And he's uh, helping Peter. Uh, Paul says, through Silvanus, I have written to you briefly. So now he's spending time with Peter. And what we learn from this interesting observation, I think, is that there's a lot of cross-pollination among those who helped the apostles. So Silas not only was a significant blessing and co-laborer with Paul, is also the same with Peter. So he spent time in both camps, if you will, laboring and serving both of these two mighty apostles. So he was a very godly, trustworthy man. So, what exactly did Sylvanus do here in verse twelve? Well, I'm reading the New American Standard. I have that up on the overhead, and it says that through speak out the words, and their scribe would actually write their words down word for word. And some say, well, Silas was that for Peter in writing this letter. And that's possible. Paul had his Tertius who helped him write with the with the uh, book of Romans, so, the apostles did use these guys from time to time. But the other opinion, which I think probably is, is even more accurate, is that this little preposition through actually can indicate that Silvanus or Silas carried the, uh, the letter from wherever Peter is to these churches in Asia Minor. He was the bearer of the letter. This particular expression through Silvanus is also found in Acts chapter 15 when when Silas or Servanus carried that letter up to the church at Antioch and the other churches as well. So it indicates he was the, the bearer of the letter and that may be the best view here, although we can't totally say he didn't help Peter in the actual writing down. Maybe his penmanship was better than Peter. You know, Peter was a fisherman, so maybe... Silas had a better handwriting, and so uh, Peter wanted him to write it as well. But he probably carried the letter as, uh, as well. I think what that tells me on the surface of it is here is a, a gifted problem. My faithful brother would give these churches a the confidence that if they had any questions about what Peter wrote, then Silas would be someone good to help them understand it. And it's also interesting that Silas had been to many of these churches previously with Paul on that second missionary journey. So if you look at the second missionary journey started at Antioch, and they go around the horn there to Tarsus, and then they go across Asia Minor. And if you look at the regions that I've underlined on the map on the left, you have Asia, then Bithynia, and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Those are the regions where all the churches are that Peter says at the beginning of his letter, I'm writing to all you churches up in this area. Well, Paul and Silas had been through that, that region. So Silas probably knew some of these churches personally. So he would be the ideal uh, individual to carry the, the letter from Peter to them because he probably knew some of them by name had visited them, maybe it helped Paul even plant some of those churches. So a very interesting reason for why Peter may have sent Silas to actually carry the letter as well. And there's just another look. When you look in uh, all the areas that Peter is writing to, is circled and then you see the, the, the general path of Paul and Silas. So he had traveled through Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, not Bithynia on the second missionary journey, but he had traveled through a lot of those areas. So he was the perfect individual to carry this letter to those churches because he had been there in that area. So it reminds me, Silas reminds me of Proverbs twenty-five thirteen, which says, Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. And Peter looked upon Silas as a faithful messenger. And he knew he could trust him. So it's like the, the cold of snow and the time of harvest is refreshing. And to send Silas with this letter would have been something that Peter would have had great confidence in Silas. So it speaks highly of his character. Well, also in verse 12, we are really told the, uh, the purpose of this letter of 1 Peter. Peter says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So he's saying basically what I've written to you about is to testify and to exhort you concerning the true grace of God. So what does he mean by the true grace of God? Well, this probably refers to the entire letter, but it probably focuses mostly upon the general truths dealing with Christ's suffering on the cross for our sins, His resurrection, and all the unmerited blessings that come to us because of the work of Christ on the cross. That's the true grace of God. And that's probably what Peter has in mind. So he's writing the letter to those who are suffering persecution, reminding them that that you are suffering for the Gospel by and large. But this is a true grace of God. This is what God has given to us. So you're not throwing your life away. You're not wasting your time. You are suffering for the true Gospel. The true grace of God. And then he exhorts them to stand firm in it. Stand in it. Don't fall down. Don't get into all the pressures to change the message. Don't run away from it. But stand firm in the true grace of God and the Gospel. Even if it brings suffering and persecution, stand on it. And these are the, the words of exhortation. That he gives to his readers. Now throughout the letter. He exhorted them to stand firm. In a variety of ways. He told them to be holy. For I am holy. He's told them to fervently love one another. From the heart. To abstain from fleshly lusts. To sanctify our responsibility. To stand firm in it. We're all tempted at times as was Peter, to deny the Lord or to take our light and put it under the bushel basket does not deny or undermine the exhortations of Scripture to stand. You need to stand so that we have both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man certainly attested to in this letter. In other words, the grace of God does not cancel out the importance of our obedience and taking the commands of Scripture seriously and personally as our responsibility. In fact, the grace of God actually produces that. But as we read the Scripture, we need to respond. When Peter says, Stand firm in it, you and I need to take that as a personal exhortation from the Apostle himself. To stand firm in the Gospel. When all the attacks are coming against it, you need to stand firm. I need to stand firm. And not to deny Christ or deny the truths of Scripture. So he exhorts them, stand firm in that true grace of God that I've labored to lay out before you in this letter. Well, from there, Peter then goes on to some other interesting information. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. So now we begin to find out, okay, where was Peter when he wrote this letter? And he seems to identify it, that she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. So, he's in Babylon, And the she who is in Babylon with him is sending greetings. So Peter's writing this, and the she, whoever that is, who's in Babylon, wherever that's at, is sending greetings to all these churches in Asia Minor. So it raises some questions. Where is Babylon, and who is the she here? Well, the Babylon, some have interpreted as literal Babylon, way off to the far east from where uh, the Holy Land is. The problem with that view of literal Babylon in in my mind and in the mind of most commentators that I read is that the historical city of Babylon in the Old Testament was in ruins in the first century. At that time it was largely abandoned and there's no evidence there was a church there in the first century. Or any apostolic visit there at that time. So most would say that's unlikely that Peter has in mind the literal Babylon, the literal city of Babylon. Some others have linked it to a small fortress town in the upper Nile Delta, but most don't go that direction. Most of the commentaries say that Babylon here is used as a code name for the city of Rome. And this was really the earliest known view in the church, interestingly enough. And it's also favored by the majority of scholars today, at least the ones that I'm uh, aware of. Now, the support for that, that Babylon is a code name for Rome, can be seen if you look, for example, at what John in the vision that he received in John chapter 17. So in that chapter, John receives a vision of a harlot woman, an evil woman who's riding a beast. And in verse 5, it says that on her forehead was written a name, and that name was a mystery, Babylon the Great. Now to say that's a mystery means, okay, don't take this literal. It's not the Babylon over there well in the far east. But it's a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So that was on her forehead. Not the kind of woman you want to spend time with. But we go on, he goes on to say that she's riding a beast, this animal who is doing her wills, and this beast has seven heads, seven horns. And John says the seven heads are seven mountains. He also says that the seven heads are seven kings. But they're seven mountains. So the beast that the woman is riding, her name is Babylon. She's riding this beast that has seven horns, which are seven heads, which are seven mountains. So... But most people would say that back then, Rome was famous for being described as a city on seven mountains, seven hills. And it may very well be, and I think again, the majority of commentators would say that Babylon the Great, written on the forehead of this harlot woman, is a code name for Rome and the Roman Empire and all the Roman kings that were associated with the beast. So, but who is the she who is in Babylon that sends the greetings? Well, again, some say, well, it could be Peter's wife. Peter was married. And his wife did travel with him on at least some of his journeys. Uh, we're, we're told that in uh, in the New Testament. And so some say that... Uh, This uh, could refer to to Peter's wife sending her greetings to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, This is probably unlikely uh, that he would include this note from his wife. So other options are, again, most people say that the she here refers to the church which is in Rome. The church in Babylon. So basically, she is chosen together with you. You're a chosen church. All you churches are chosen by God. The church I'm with now in Rome is chosen, and she's sending you her greetings. So what's interesting about this is that uh, Paul, um, excuse me, Peter is talking to this about this particular. Church and refers to them as being more than likely in Rome, and that they were chosen together with you. And again, this idea of being chosen is something that uh, Peter camps on in other places, but some of the early manuscripts of the first Peter actually put church next to the she, or they include it in this verse indicating that they interpreted the she as a church instead of like Peter's wife or something like that. The she is appropriate pronoun for a church because a church is referred to as the bride of Christ, so oftentimes used in a with a feminine pronoun, so that would certainly fit here in verse 13. Uh, again, what's interesting about this is Peter, as with Paul and the other new, uh, authors of Scripture, believed in the doctrine of election. So Peter is saying that the church that I'm with now, when we're writing the letter, is chosen along with you. That this church is chosen. The churches I'm writing to, y'all are chosen by God. So they ultimately acknowledge God's sovereignty in bringing to pass these particular churches. Peter has used this word chosen several other times in the letter he says to the church in verse 1 that he's writing to, you're chosen aliens. You are pilgrims in this world, but you're chosen by God. You're chosen aliens. And then in chapter 2, he described the church. Churches that he's writing to as chosen race. Chosen race. Chosen by God. Be God's special people. And he uses it a couple of times of Christ being the precious and Choice. The end of verse 13, and so does my son Mark send you his greetings. So now here's another interesting person that comes up, and this is Mark. So Mark, again, is with Peter in Rome, taking that view. And Peter knew Mark quite well, even earlier in Jerusalem, uh, in portionship. Maybe he brought Mark, Peter brought Mark to the Lord. We don't know. But this is the same Mark that most people believe uh, actually wrote the Gospel of Mark. And he's with Peter in Rome as he's writing this letter. And probably later on with, with uh, Peter's guidance and instruction and memory, he will help Mark write the Gospel of Mark that we read of in the New Testament. It's another interesting thing because John Mark had also labored with Paul. Remember on the first missionary journey. But he abandoned ship halfway through. That's why Paul didn't want to take Mark with him. But later on, these two men reconciled. And Paul writes in his last letter in 2 Timothy 4.11, he writes to Timothy, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me for service. So even though they had a falling out after the first missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark again. Paul said, No, he, he, he deserted us. I'm taking Silas with me on my second missionary journey. So there was some friction between these two men at that time. But now it's all been healed up by the end of Paul's life. By the time he writes Second. Timothy. And what does that speak to us? Well, it tells us that love covers a multitude of transgressions and heals all wounds that we inflict upon each other. So there was was a problem in their relationship, but the grace of God led them to be healed and mended and loved so that Paul now He treasured Mark. He said, make sure Mark comes to me because he's useful to me. And you know, the people that you're at odds with now, the people who may have injured you or mistreated you or in some way offended you, the grace of God would have there be peace and restore that love, which was the theme that we celebrated earlier and the grace of God can help repair those broken relationships. And that's what we see. And I just find it so interesting that Mark, like Silas, had ministry with both Paul and Peter. But you see certainly the grace of God in this man who was uh, had a falling out, but certainly God used him in many ways for ministry. And it's just a blessing, I think, to, to see him come up again. Even in this letter, helping out peter or before he was with paul so again a lot of cross pollination well as we uh turn to the last verse peter says greet one another with a kiss of love Uh, this was a cultural standard back in that day to greet one another Men would greet men with a kiss on the cheek. Women would greet women with a kiss on the cheek. That was just a cultural standard. Uh, Don't try to do that today. You might be misunderstood. Uh, Today it's the right hand of fellowship or a hug or something like that. Don't come up and try to kiss me on the cheek. You know, that kind of an idea. Uh, But that was a cultural custom back then. That's the way they always did it. And it's done that way today. In many countries over in the Middle East and even in Europe, uh, they still greet one another with a, with a kiss. That's just the way they, they do it back then. Uh, not so much here. At least not in this church. Uh, but it is interesting, this kiss of love is that it was a gesture to communicate love to the brethren. And you really see just the importance of greeting. Now again, we don't greet with a kiss. But the incredible importance of greeting one another. Uh, This is something that every believer can do. You don't have to have a spiritual gift to greet people. Uh, But this is the way they greeted one another to show their love for one another. And again, this kiss of love, the emphasis is on the the love. It communicated love. And that has been one of those themes in Peter that we've seen crop up uh, several times in this letter. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 22, Peter had exhorted them to fervently love one another from the heart. That's what we're supposed to do. Fervently love. Love one another from the heart. In chapter 2, verse 17, he exhorted them, love the brotherhood. Love the brethren. Chapter 4, verse 8, he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Chapter 4, verse 8. So now he says, and he's speaking to all these churches, and he says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. So within the church, that greeting is to be one of the main ways we show love for one another as we greet one another. And I think that is still very apropos today. Greeting others on Sunday or when you see them is one of the most important ways we can show love to each other. And though we may do a good job in this church, Excel still more. There's a great room for growing and excelling in that great ministry of just greeting one another. And then he comes to the last benediction where he ends the letter when he says, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. So now Peter kind of comes full circle. He started the letter with a benediction, a blessing of peace. Find that in verse 2. And now he concludes the letter with a benediction of peace. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And a benediction is a word of blessing. It's, It's kind of like a prayer where he wants God to give them peace for all of those who are in Christ. He wants them to live and walk and know the peace of God. What Peter has in mind here is not the other expression that Paul talks about, peace with God. Every believer already has peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. We have peace with God, as Paul says in Romans 8, excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, which every believer has, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we already have peace with God. So Peter has in mind probably the peace of God, which is a different kind of peace. Peace with God has removed the curse of God, the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, the curse of God. Peace with God means that though before we were enemies of God, the blood of Christ and the grace of God has made the enemies become friends in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God. But we don't all have the peace of God. That's more the practical experience of that peace. This kind of peace, peace of God, can refer to both outward peace and inward peace. Both peace with men and also the peace of God in the inner man. I think it's very fitting that Peter concludes his letter with this benediction of peace. Because one of the themes of his letter has been they have been suffering, they've been persecuted, they're going through various trials, they need peace. The letter is designed to give peace in the inner man, even when we don't have peace in the outer man. And so Paul has been exhorting his readers to trust in the Lord, to cast their anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for them and to find his peace. Isaiah 26, verse 3, Isaiah emphasizes this also when he says, The steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So, how do you find the perfect peace of God? You trust in the Lord. And much of what Peter's been emphasizing in this letter is you who are suffering, you are going through all kinds of trials and troubles, you don't have peace in the outer man. They may be afflicting you outwardly. They may be beating you up outwardly. But you can still have peace in the inner man. You can still have peace in your soul. And I think what Peter may have in this benediction is peace. May you not be persecuted by the ruling authorities in the town in which you live. May they not come and attack the church. And that's why Paul tells us, by the way, to pray for our uh, ruling authorities so that we might live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, have peace without the fear of persecution or threat or like what's you know, stuff happening like what's going up in Canada. So you, but even if you don't have outward peace in your life, you can still have God's peace in your heart. And I think Peter wants both of those kinds of pieces because many of his readers are suffering. And being persecuted by people around them. This peace that he closes with is an incredible blessing whenever you can find it by the grace of God. It becomes like spiritual shock absorbers to our life to soften the jolt when our car hits those speed bumps or those potholes in the road. The shock absorbers can smooth it out. And peace in your heart can be like a spiritual shock absorber when we get battered by life or we get jolted by all the unseen potholes of life. We need God's peace. Peace is a blessing. It's a safe haven in the midst of the storm. It's a strong tower when we're under attack. And no matter how violent the winds of our trials and our troubles and our tribulations may be, when the believer trusts in the Lord, we can have God's peace. And even though the winds are whirling all around us, tempting us to to fear and anxiety, yet we can live in the eye of the hurricane if we have God's peace. So that even though the winds are destroying everything around us, The sky is clear. We see God on His throne. We can have His peace even in the midst of chaotic circumstances. One of the great examples of that, I think, is Stephen. Who after he had given a faithful witness to Christ before the Sanhedrin, he gazed up into heaven And he told them what he saw. And you remember, what he saw was the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And when he told the Sanhedrin what he saw, in the eye of the hurricane, with all the hate and evil and all the abuse swirling around him, He looks up and the sky is clear and he sees Christ on his throne. Standing next to the throne. And that produced such a hatred in the hearts of the Sanhedrin that they dragged him out of the city and they began stoning him to death. And though Peter did not have peace in his outer man, he's being stoned to death. Rocks are being pelted. Upon his body. But he had peace in the inner man. Because as he was taking one of his final breaths. He prayed to God. Lord do not hold this sin against them. Now how can you pray that. If you don't have God's peace. And if you're not trusting in God. In the midst of that. See, he was living in the eye of the hurricane. He didn't have peace in the outer man. But he had God's peace in his inner man so that his heart towards his persecutors was, Lord, forgive them. Forgive them. Just that overflowing of peace in his heart. This peace that Peter desires that all of these believers have and experience is found in only one place. It's in Christ. There's no other place to find this peace but in Jesus Christ. In other words, we must know Christ in saving faith to have His peace. Christ has the power to speak peace to all the troubling circumstances of our life, both outwardly and inwardly. So that when the disciples were in the boat in the midst of the storm, Christ was asleep. The storm was rolling in. The winds were blowing. The waves were, were bashing up against the side of the boat, coming over the side, threatening to, to sink the boat. And the disciples were with no peace in the outer circumstances, woke up Christ and what did He do? He stood up and He said to the waves and the winds, Hush, be still. And it immediately became calm and peaceful. The Lord can speak peace to your outer circumstances as well. But He can give peace, most importantly, to those who know Him by faith, who can trust Him, For the salvation and the grace that we have in Him. And He can fill our hearts with peace. This is the peace that Paul talked about when he told us in Philippians 4 to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts And your minds in Christ. That's that inner peace that can guard our heart against the fear, the worry, the anxiety that the world is always trying to stoke up within our hearts. Just turn on the news. I mean, it's all over the place. But Peter says, I want you to have peace. Peace in the midst of the chaos. Well, again, this peace is found only in Christ and the Lord Jesus. Actually told his disciples that, in John 16, some of the last words that Jesus told his disciples before his own arrest and trial and crucifixion, when they're in the upper room, he's going to be crucified the next morning. His disciples are about ready to be entered into a talk about a storm of life, talk about a tsunami. Their their world is going to be turned upside down when Christ, their leader, their master, their rabbi is going to be arrested and put to death. Their world is going to be crashed in by these circumstances. So to prepare them, Jesus earlier said, these things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now notice what Jesus said. I have spoken these things to you so that you may in me have peace. So the peace practically, the way we grow in peace is to fill our minds with God's Word. Because that's, pe- that's what Jesus is saying. These things I have spoken to you. And not only just in the upper room discourse, but probably all the things he had pe- been teaching them throughout his whole ministry so that here's the purpose of my words that I'm giving to you so that in me you may have peace. And it ties together the peace of God with the Word of God. If you and I need more peace today, we need to get our peace thought life more in line and full of God's Word. That's what's going to give us peace. Do you have that peace this morning? Are there areas in your life that you're fearful of, you're full of anxiety, you're worried about, and you don't have God's peace, but you want it? Well, oftentimes we find ourselves in that boat, don't we? But let me close by just giving you three things that William Gurnall in his classic work, The Christian in Complete Armor, uh, tells us how the believer can grow in their peace. The very peace that Peter wants all of these to have, which oftentimes is so fleeting from us, but Gurnall tells us on a practical level What truths from God's Word do we need to keep in our minds that we can grow in God's peace regardless of the outward circumstances? Number one, know that every event is the product of God's providence, that God's in control. Whatever it is you're fearful of, anxious over, worried about, God's in control. Not a sparrow, much less a saint falls to the ground by poverty, sickness, or persecution, but the hand of God is in it, says William Grinnell. Number two, remember that God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never think that the Lord has abandoned you in your trial or in your trouble. He is always with you. And His presence is there to comfort you, to aid you, to give you His peace when we trust Him and turn to Him. So God has promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Know His presence is always with you. That's number two. Number three, finally, God in wisdom conceals the comforts He intends to give you in the future. In other words, much of our anxiety and fear deals with future things. And what William Grinnell says the Bible teaches us is is a reality that, you know what? God hides from me and conceals from me the grace He's going to give me to get through that, whatever it is I'm fearful about. I don't see that grace now. I don't feel that grace now. But God has hidden it from me. But He will provide when that time comes. To test the metal of Abraham's faith, God let him go on until his hand was stretched out to slay Isaac, his son. And then he came to rescue him. God sent His disciples in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, but stayed behind to test their faith and later showed His love and His glory to them when He came to them walking on the water. So comfort yourself with this. That though you do not see God in the way, yet you will find Him in the end. Because He has promised to you that He began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, the last blessing that Peter wants to leave ringing in their ears is that God would give them peace to live in that peace, to thank in that peace, to have that peace. Stay in the Word of God. Trust in the Lord. And He will give it to you. So may God fill your heart and my heart with His peace. And whatever it is that troubles us, let us put it in the hands of God. His providence is in control of it. His presence is with us. And He will give us the grace we need at the right time to see us through. What a wonderful God we worship. And may God fill us with His peace. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for the Holy Spirit's work in giving Peter this wonderful letter to write that is still alive and powerful And able to bless Your people even today. So Father, we pray as Peter ended his letter that You would grant us more of Your peace. That we would know the peace with God. If there's anyone here that has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, may they come to know peace with God through putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And be justified by faith alone in Him. But for us who know the Lord, Father, who oftentimes don't have the peace of God, we pray that you would fill us with that peace. Give us a contentment and give us a conviction and a confidence that we are in your hands. Regardless of our outward circumstances, we are in your hands, and that is the best place to be in the whole universe in the hands of God. So Lord, comfort our hearts. Fill us with Your peace, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.